I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am delighted to be sitting across from Sarah Weinman today. Sarah is the author of The Real Lolita, which is out in paperback now. She's also the editor of Women Crime Writers, Eight Suspense Novels in the 1940s and 50s, and Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives. And she's written for all the publications about crime and books and lots of other things. Welcome, Sarah. It is truly my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Maris. I I do find it funny that one of the last shows that just aired featured Taffy Ackner talking about how (laughs) she would like to either drink your blood or test it because you you are skilled at at reading very quickly. I mean, apparently, look, if I had to choose, if it was like a life or death situation where I had to choose between reading and writing – I would still choose reading because reading feeds everything that I do. You know, not to carry this whole vampirism, blood drinking metaphor a little (laughs) too much, but it is kind of my lifeblood. I've been reading since I was too young to remember. I mean, my mom would say that she saw me reading before I was three. I'm inclined to believe her. Yeah. Um, And there are photos of me from (laughs) even younger where I'm holding on to a ripped page of a picture book in, you know, utter concentration and absorption. And I thought, yeah, that's pretty much (laughs) me in a nutshell. I love that. So I I was going back over the piece I wrote about you last year, almost exactly a year ago. I think it was, if not exactly a year ago, then really close. So I mean, is this sort of like the first meta podcast that you've done, where Um, it's revisiting a book that you've already covered, but at the same time, Reese Kwan was on recently. Oh, amazing! Okay, but but you know, still still new, still new. And so we went to Atlantic City together. Yes, we did. We met at Port Authority bus station early on a weekday morning. Glamorous. (laughs) (laughs) And you conducted the interview on the bus to start with. And then we walked along the boardwalk. And much to my amazement and shock and surprise, and I suppose you could say delight, even though the subject matter isn't necessarily delightful, 
But the reason we were going to Atlantic City is because that was where Sally Horner, the 11-year-old girl that I write about in The Real Alita, that was the first place that Frank LaSalle took her to and that she had um, been told that if she didn't go away with him, he would send her to the reformatory because he had claimed that he was an FBI agent and she being just about 11 years old with no conception that a much older man would be lying to her, believed him. And because of the time and because of dire economic what circumstances. Ta- what year was this? 1948. So considering the dire economic circumstances, Sally was in a lower a lower middle class upbringing, single mom. Her other sister was married and about to deliver a, her first child. There's just a lot going on. And she was lonely and she didn't have a lot of friends and, and didn't have a lot of input and people around her to protect her. When she tells her mother that this man who is telling her to feed a story of, I'm the father of school friends and you have to come away with me, so concoct the story that you'll be spending a week with friends down by the shore, Sally's mother, Ella, was inclined to believe her because she didn't have the wherewithal to give her daughter a vacation. She couldn't afford it. She could barely keep the lights on. So here we were going down to Atlantic City. And obviously, the Atlantic City of 2018 is not the Atlantic City of 1948, just as the Camden of 1948 is by no means at all the Camden of now. And that's where Camden is where Sally was originally taken. And eventually when she is rescued, she goes right back into that cauldron Mm. that she had been essentially born and raised in. And that's a whole other matter, but to kind of keep it on Atlantic City for the moment. So we're walking up and down the boardwalk and we go over to the address that I had and there's the house. There's the house. And And Google Maps did not show the house. No, but I think it's because Google Maps was looking across the street as some vacant lot. So I just assumed that that was what it was. But then I sort of redid it in my head and realized, no, that's, that's the house. And I don't want to say that it looked exactly like it did in 1948, because I'm sure it doesn't, but it didn't exactly look super modern and updated. No, certainly not. (laughs) (laughs) I think you remember the look on my face of just like, what? (laughs) Holy shit. What? I wasn't expecting this at all. I thought this would just be like me recreating or, you know, retracing the footsteps that Sally walked. I did a similar thing when I was writing the book where I went down to Wildwood on the anniversary of her death. Right. Because Sally, after, to kind of do the potted history of this book, it describes a cross-country nightmare that takes Sally from Atlantic City to Baltimore, to Dallas, to San Jose, where she's ultimately rescued thanks to the efforts of an enterprising neighbor who turns out to be a deeply complicated woman. We'll get to that later. Yes, we will. (laughs) And then she only lives for another two and a half years. And it's hard for Sally because, as I mentioned before, she she comes back to the city where she was born and raised and where there was sensational and substantive media coverage of her rescue. And everybody knows not only that she had been kidnapped, but that she had been sexually assaulted. And they didn't use those words No, that they day, did not. Of course. No. I mean, they did not use rape. They did not use forcible. They did not use against the, a little bit against her will, but really the implication was at least to the community that she was part of is instead of being 
a victim who had been incredibly wronged and who would suffer trauma that she had given up her virginity willingly to an older man. And it was a stigma that a lot of people could not get past and only a handful could. Because every 11-year-old just looking to, I mean, I do think it's ridiculous and disgusting and sort of funny that after that, we walked back on the boardwalk and we found ourselves at lunch in this place (laughs) called the Sugar Factory. Which I perhaps stupidly did not realize was a chain. And I've seen subsequent sugar factories around going, oh, it's it's a concept. It has obscenely large sundaes and concoctions and stuff I will never eat because I'm not a diabetic. I know you are. Yeah. But I feel like just being around it would put me in some kind of diabetic shock. Well, I mean, so how was it for you? I mean, <laughs> it was like – it was the kind of excess that is so – lovely to look at and I don't want to you know I would never even try like you know milkshakes with like pieces of cake hanging out of them as like a side it was Uh, kind of unreal it was it was absolutely unreal and here we are so Sally is the basis as you claim in the book for for Lolita it'll be 65 years next year since it was first published and this month is the 61st anniversary Mm -hmm. of the American publication. And so in very late in the novel, the narrator who the deeply unreliable, deeply untrustworthy narrator, Humbert Humbert, he has returned essentially to the scene of the crime, which is Ramsdale, Vermont, the New England town where he lands and first stays at the house that Dolores Hayes' mother, Charlotte, lives and he's their lodger. Many years have passed. Much has happened since. And he's walking around and he encounters a neighbor. And at one point he thinks, had I done to Dolly, which is one of the nicknames for Dolores or Lolita, Lolita. had I done to Dolly, perhaps, what Frank LaSalle, a 50-year-old mechanic, had done to Sally Horner in 1948. And of course, the thing with Lolita is that it's such a novel of language, of density, that it dazzles, it seduces, it manipulates. Right. I mean, there are two editions of the annotated Lolita. So you could spend your entire life looking for allusions and references because there there are plenty to be had. But that's just as straightforward as it gets. Right. So it's right there. And once you realize that he actually is referring to a real life case and to a real girl and to real trauma, once you know that, you can't unknow that. It's once the sign is flashing neon, you can't unsee it and and have your retinas unburned by it. And and so again, just in terms of juxtaposition, sitting in this restaurant watching people consume just like almost monstrous <laughs> looking uh, concoctions really takes the idea of that sweet innocence thing yeah, and and throws it against the wall and puts like 12 cookies in it and uh, a bunch of sugar. And yet in a weird way, especially it's depicted in Lolita and I can extrapolate it to perhaps to Sally's experience. Chances are those two girls, if they were on the road, they would have stopped off, say, to get ice cream or sundaes or candy. And so even though I think you know, that was clearly a case of it was really, really hot and sunny and we just walked the boardwalk and we had just survived a three-hour bus ride and had <laughs> another one coming and we needed a, something to eat. At the same time, you know, I don't want to twist this metaphor too much, but there's one there's one that could be there if 
we were looking for it. <laughs> I, I was really looking for it. I don't know if you could tell. And so when did you first discover that Sally Horner was in fact a real kid and that Nabokov at least was aware of her? Yeah, it was probably around late 2013 or thereabouts when I was looking for the next crime feature story that I wanted to work on. I just closed or I was waiting to close a piece that would eventually run in the New York Times Magazine in early 14. But I think I had ter- finished a draft early that fall. Mm-hmm. And it was on a man who was serving a life sentence for murder who had won a private detective novel contest, right. writing about a New York City he couldn't have known because he had been locked up too long. And I just found that disconnect fascinating. And also, crime fiction is my world. Yes. So I have to admit that it it was a little bit easier that I knew exactly who to talk to and how to convey it. And my editor at the time was Adam Sternberg, who subsequently became a crime novelist. He and I share the same book yes. editor. He's now back at the New York Times Magazine after going. <laughs> so great. I think it's like a second go around there after two go arounds at New York. So <laughs> there's there's a lot of cyclical stuff happening there. Yes. So I was trying to figure out what to do next. And as is my want, it's just this mix of what internet rabbit hole am I going to fall down? Yes. And at the time, oh my God, it was internet rabbit holes were so much more innocent back oh, then. Oh gosh. Now to fall down a rabbit hole, you're liable to land on a Nazi and or a white nationalist or whatever you want Intel, to call it. And, yeah, whatever. It's it's not great. <laughs> it's not great. So my that rabbit hole at that point was still some mix of websleuths.com or weird Wikipedia pages about unsolved missing persons cases or random message boards or email lists. I'm not even sure. But some unholy mixture led me to this 2005 essay that had run in the Times Literary Supplement, by, and it was by a Nabokov scholar named Alexander Dolanin. And the title was What Happened to Sally Horner? And in it, he talks about this kidnapping of this real girl, and there are photos of her. There's photos of Frank LaSalle, uh, the perpetrator. And he goes through a fairly rigorous compare and contrast between parts of Lolita and parts of what happened to Sally. And, of course, there's that line that I refer to, the one that's Mm -hmm. directly referenced. Yeah. And it occurred to me, had anyone reported out Sally's story as a crime story? Right. And I knew even then that I couldn't just do it as a straight crime story, so to speak. Right. Because to me, the larger question was what what happens when a real case and a real life is appropriated by fiction and what responsibility does the writer have in doing so? Because it's a question that I myself have grappled with. I think every crime writer, sure, every writer of fiction – involving some violent or traumatic act, if they haven't grappled with it, they damn well should. They should. Um, and, and then it just so happens that this is the book that most people who've read books have read this book. Yeah. And if they haven't read it, they still have an opinion. Yes, they do. And and they can picture like a little girl wearing uh, heart-shaped glasses or, or some, yeah. they have some notion. I mean, One thing about writing this book is that it wasn't just writing about the story of Sally Horner or the publication process of Lolita. It was also figuring out this very bizarre life and cultural afterlife of Lolita and how that novel has been so deeply misunderstood really since the beginning. 
and the fact that adaptations of Lolita have done it such a disservice, starting with Stanley Kubrick's film, mm -hmm. which, yes, there's, there's good acting, there's good set pieces, but for understandable reasons, they could not film the novel as it was written. It wouldn't have passed the censors, but it's also that Kubrick and his producing partner, Jimmy Harris, came in with a misunderstanding. I mean, Harris was quoted as saying that he viewed this as a bizarre love story. Yeah, It's this idea, and it, this is the thing that I've been trying to do ever since my book was published. And I feel like I'm somewhat successful, but it's going to be an ongoing process. This mm -hmm. idea that, can we please stop equating the nickname Lolita with the idea of a seductress? Right. Because Lolita was Dolores Hayes. She was a 12-year-old girl. She didn't live all that long. She, after getting away from Humbert Humbert, she ends up with Claire Quilty, and he himself has equally perverse and profane yes. desires. She gets away from that and ends up with her husband and is on the way to at least something resembling a normal life of her choosing. Yes. This is the thing that I think it's really important to stress. What gets lost because it's Humbert Humbert's narration, because yes. it's his perspective, is that it was all this book was always about Dolores Hayes. Yeah. It was always about the choices she couldn't make and the choices she could make and the tragedy that she couldn't live long enough to make even more choices. And it's funny because another thing that we've discussed a lot is that so there are people out there who think, well, then you don't like one of the best novels out there one by one of the best writers. And it's like, no, that's not what Sarah is saying with this book. I'll say it on record again. Please. I think Lolita is one of the greatest novels ever written in the 20th century. And writing my book does not change that. Yeah. It's just looking at it from a different, important perspective. Yeah. And I think that any way we can read novels with a heightened understanding or a broader understanding is all to the good. And so, no, it doesn't negate what Nabokov was doing. And I just think it's incredibly important to stress that. I want my book to be in permanent conversation with sure. Lolita. And what I want is for people, when they're considering their own reactions and analysis of Lolita, that they also take into account that Sally Horner was a real girl who lived not long enough, who loved and was loved, and should have had a chance to grow up and pursue the life she was meant to pursue and make the choices that hopefully she would have been able to make. My, by my own reporting and research, just talking to the few people who were then still around Right. Many have since passed away, but they all painted a portrait of a really smart, lovely, wonderful girl. And if I can just convey that, then that's another job that I hope I've done. And and I know how extensive your research was and and how difficult it is because it's we're we're at a time when the people who knew Sally are older. And when I asked you last year what you thought about ending the book as you did, you said the book is, on, is only as done as you set it out to be. And you wouldn't mind if more people came forward after the hardcover publication because then it would be closer to the truth. 
And so your paperback has a whole new section in it. Yes, it does. And that's because probably maybe a week or so after we went to Atlantic City, so about three weeks before the publication date, which was September 11th of last year. Look, someone got, <laughs> you got to take Sarah's that Sarah's making day hands. You know, look, yeah, what can you do? Yeah, it's, you it's do? a Tuesday. So, Mm -hmm. but about three weeks before then, I got an email from one of those weird freedom of information account that the FBI has. I had submitted a FOIA request for Frank LaSalle's FBI file 18 months before. Right. And so now the book's ready to go. I already have finished copies. (laughs) I I get this email, click on this PDF. I'm like, okay. So I click on the PDF. And there's a 60-page file. It's not the full file because the FBI, of course, will redact certain pages sure. that they deem, I don't know, that it will violate national security or some cockamamie reason. I'm not sure. But it was enough for me to figure out two key things. First, directly related to the FBI report, that they were involved early and that one agent closed the file in October and just said, oh, well, we don't have enough information to pursue it, even though it was an interstate kidnapping and they knew. And so in that file, there was a handwritten note essentially saying this really was bad, that they closed the file. So it's in there that they fucked up. I can't imagine in the 40s, a nice little girl gets taken and the case isn't strong enough. So they're like, eh, well, she'll turn up eventually. (laughs) Like It just makes you wonder how many other similar cases of potential interstate lines were slipped through the cracks because these all-male FBI units just didn't care or they just didn't concern themselves. And I mean, when LaSalle was ultimately arrested, though it became a New Jersey case, thus a state case, right. he was held on violation of the Mann Act, which is transporting across state right. lines. Right. So, the, yeah, it, it boggled my mind reading that. And it made me so angry on Sally's behalf, on her family's behalf. And it's like I didn't even know what to do. I had to kind of sit with it for a while. Yeah. So then I keep reading this file. And it also includes notes on when Frank LaSalle was captured and the li- some of the lies that he told. And he tried to deny that he was married, that he had children. He claimed that his wife was dead. But everything he said was a, was a verifiable lie. But one thing they did figure out because of his fingerprints is that he had served time in federal prison in the 1920s from about 1924 to 1928 in Leavenworth, Kansas. And thanks to this note, it included his prison number and the alias that he used. He had so many different alias. More than 20 by my count. And so here was this alias, Frank Campbell. I thought, oh my God, finally. Mm -hmm. And here's why. As I described in the first edition of The Real Alita, I had been in this constant communication with this one archivist who covers Leavenworth. And I'd had back and forths trying to figure out which alias LaSalle was under because I would try one. It didn't work. I tried another. <laughs> I would try like six others. Right. And it didn't work. And we were both kind of at our wits end 
being like, it's a needle in the haystack. We don't know. I finally have the alias. I immediately email this archivist, Greg Bognich, and I, you know, I can't quote the exact email that sure. I wrote, but it was essentially like, oh my goodness, I finally <laughs> figured out what the alias is and here's his prison number and is it actually in your file? And he wrote back within an hour and was like, Sarah, oh my God, we found him. <laughs> and he had become so invested in this over sure. time, which I mean, I'm an archive nerd, so I get yes, it. And yeah. I'm going to be going back to archives very soon. And I've been in it already for the next book. But there's a real sense of victory <laughs> when you find that piece of information of that has eluded you for more than four years, as was the case. And so he goes and checks and he sends me several PDFs and it included LaSalle's booking photo when he was starting his prison sentence for essentially running a car theft ring okay, and getting involved in some other shady grifting deals. So I now know what he looked like in the 20s. He basically looked like a younger, about to be hardened, but not quite version of himself. Okay. He claimed to be in his 40s. I'm pretty sure he was in his late 20s. Huh. Yeah. The Frank Campbell alias, because wherever he got it, that guy was, was married with five kids and 45. He was not. Wow. Got it. And the prison file not only included the photo and, you know, whatever maladies and infractions, but it included letters. Yeah. And those letters were weird because most of them were trying to run grifts right, or sort of seduce old flame slash mark slash I don't even know. And there were a couple where I don't want to say that they were predilections of what was to come, but the fact there was one referring to, you know, come, come and sit on daddy's lap, which was pretty. I mean, that's like, yeah. if you're looking up pedophile in the dictionary, like that's, that's the thing that they're going to say. Yeah. <laughs> or just, it just wasn't great. Yeah. <laughs> I think great, is a fair way to put it. Not great. And these are letters that were unsent? Um, It's unclear. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, I think my sense is they may not have been sent because he had tried to send a letter on behalf of another prisoner and he got caught. And so he, I don't know if he was sent to solitary confinement, but there was some degree of punishment. Mm. And so any letters he would send tended to be confiscated. Got it. I don't, I'll have to go back and recheck the file, but I don't believe incoming letters were preserved. Got it. So it's also a possibility that copies of letters that got sent out because they were subject to scrutiny by the prison warden, the censors, that they would have preserved those copies as part of the file. So they may have been sent out. I don't know. Huh. But what I, and as I say in the afterward, I know more about him, but he's still kind of a mystery. I mean, it, I was able to do a little bit more digging to figure out with some degree of confidence, but not full degree of confidence that he was probably from Canada. Just like you. Uh, you know, <laughs> everything comes down to Canada, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, it looks like he and his people were from Quebec and he emigrated when he was quite young, certainly under the age of five. 
and his family came over as well. And it's unclear because he would lie constantly about how many brothers and sisters he had, what his parents' names were, how many children he had. So it just became this exercise in banging my head against the wall, yeah, trying to figure sure. out what is real and what is not. And so this is why I keep coming back to, you can't really make a one-to-one -one comparison between LaSalle and Humbert Humbert because LaSalle is a lot less interesting. Yeah, harder to... Yeah, and a lot more slippery. A lot more slippery. The thing I keep coming back to with, with your book is that we talk a lot now about nostalgia for this past time, mostly post-World War II America, um, for white people, yeah. at least. That's that's the slogan that our president ran on. And you reveal that things weren't quite so great. No, I mean, we're really good at making myths about American greatness and wanting to buy into a certain type of society that we thought existed, but actually never existed in the first place. And so obviously between this book and the anthologies that I edited, I th I've thought a lot about America in that pr during and post-World War II time when the men went off to war, the women went to work because what else? They had to. Yeah. To, it was patriotic. It was good for them. It was good for the country. It was good for the soldiers. But then when the men came back, they felt entitled to set things, though, and I'm doing air quotes here, the way things were supposed to be, unquote. Right. And so the men went to work. The women stayed at home with the kids. You had these planned communities. You had other city places like Camden and Baltimore. And that was another sort of running theme that I didn't know was going to be a running theme. Yes. That Sally was in all these neighborhoods and communities that at the time were predominantly white working class and then became predominantly African-American and poorer and white flight got them all. Right. And also Oak Cliff and Dallas and Barclay and Baltimore. So it, it told me a lot about the state of certain American cities and the neglect and the blight that had come in. And Nabokov, he may not have known that he was chronicling it, but he also did that in Lolita. Sure. Especially with the road trips and the 1947 and 1952 timeframe. Mm -hmm. It really is a snapshot of what America was both like and also supposed to be like. Like because Humbert Humbert and his monstrous proclivities and what and all the assaults that keep happening to Dolores Hayes, that was what was really going on that nobody talked about. Right. And of course, what is presented is this love of America. It's not Europe. Yes. Um, it's supposed to promise something greater, but really there's all this ugliness that hasn't been dealt with at all. And I mean, it's, it's impossible to think of this time as better when you had colored bathrooms and <laughs> people going to the back to the bus and Jews not being allowed in the same spaces as Catholics and Protestants and, and quote, white people. And so how is this better? How is this the great America that we're supposed to long for? And what are we really longing for anyway? We're just, we're just longing for some simulacrum, some ersatz society that Never was never there in the first place, and and I think that you, I mean, you bring it home so much to me, 
in in talking about the newspaper headlines at the time. Yeah. Like Sally had Sally she was never going to be able to lead a normal life in Camden. No, and I I do feel like the prosecutor of the case, Mitchell Cohen, he had advised Sally and her mother yeah. to leave town to change their names to start fresh. And because yeah, they the the press coverage was so brutal. Right. And if LaSalle had not pleaded guilty, I mean, it was pretty clear he was going to be pleading guilty, whether by his own volition or pressure. But if he hadn't, there would have been a trial and it would have just been so traumatic just based on the coverage of the preliminary hearings that she, that Sally would attend and become incredibly upset by and cry and have to be consoled. How would she have gotten through a trial? What would the coverage have been like? There was no man, there was no mandate for respectful coverage of the victims. Would she have been forced to testify and would there have been victim blaming? So clearly a guilty verdict was a way to avoid all that. Yes. And I think it's hard to know because Mitchell Cohen is only knowable through media accounts mm-hmm. and, and a few instances where I was able to talk to people who knew him, like his son, a little bit his daughter, but not so much. She kept referring me to talk to her brother. Okay. <laughs> but Fair. he just seemed like so, like a stand-up guy. He had been the prosecutor also overseeing the mass shooting that happened in Camden in 1949. Right. It'll be the 70th anniversary of that mass shooting next month by Howard Unruh. Mm. I've been thinking about that a lot, obviously, not just because we have a mass shooting all the goddamn time, yeah. but because this one, there was a young boy named Charles Cohen. He was 12, and his entire family was killed, and he, his grandmother had shoved him in a closet, and he managed to live. So he was 12. And I keep thinking, can you imagine going through your bar mitzvah and your entire family is oh, dead? Oh, God. And he never talked about it for decades. He, I think, told his wife, but no one else. And then he would slowly come out of it, slowly come out of it. And whenever Unruh, because Unruh was never tried, he never went to prison, he was committed. So whenever there, it, it would come back to court to see if he was fit to stand trial or if he should be released, Cohen finally would go and be physically present and say, I survived this, Unruh should never be let out. And I essentially want to dance on his grave when he dies. Oof. Well... Cohen died only a few months before Unruh did. Hmm. And then his granddaughter, Carly Novel, I hope I'm saying her name right, um, she survived Parkland. And so the (laughs) point is, is that, you know, I think a lot about how trauma gets passed from generation to generation, just generally. Yes. But now we're creating these new pathways that should never exist in the first place. You know, people surviving one mass shooting and then they don't for another one or surviving yeah. multiple. I mean, this is just unreal and, and it's madness. And it's a society that w- we have a lot to reckon with. And so going back into time and to history and trying to figure out what are the what are the precedents, what can we learn from them? Is yeah. there anything to learn at all? But that's my hope both with The Real Lolita and my next book. Tell us a little bit about your, your next book. So Please. it starts with the murder of a teenage girl named Victoria Zielinski in March 1957 in Bergen County. And sort of similar to Sally's rescue, this was a murder that 
was a real sensation. Murders didn't really happen in Bergen County, right. in Mawa and Ramsey, which is the general locale where it happened. And a man named Edgar Smith was arrested within 48 hours. The trial happened fast. The jurors convicted him quickly. The evidence was quite substantial towards his guilt. He was sentenced to death. Hmm. A few years later, Smith is on death row, and he's managed to survive several stays of ex execution. And he gives an interview to one of the local papers talking about how he he's a big fan of the National Review, and he w and and a warden had a, a subscription, and he he wishes he could read it. And William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review, got wind of this and said, "I'll get give you a subscription for life." They start corresponding. Buckley ends up believing that Smith is innocent of the murder. He hooks him up with a book editor. Smith publishes a nonfiction book. Then he publishes a novel. He gets out, and then things devolve from there. Well, I am. I cannot wait to read it. I know you're still hard at work on it. Oh, yes. But let's talk about other things that you're reading. What are you into now? So right before getting here, I finished reading Jess Rao's White Flights, yes. which, I mean, it was always going to be – it's one of those timeless and timely books. But I just feel like – I don't know. I've been on this ongoing project to – examine whiteness, to examine my own sense of what that means. The first book I think I read in 2019 was Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility. Mm. And I just feel like it can be really difficult to get other people to sit with this discomfort and this feeling of what, what am I and what harm am I causing yeah. and how culpable am I? But I'm a crime writer. I feel like it's really important for me to live in the discomfort and to examine my own sense of what where I might be wronging people and my own moral culpability. And so if I can do it, maybe in doing the reading and the listening and the work, then I can help other people who are close to see some of the ways in which they can change. I mean, it sounds like a lofty goal here, but I do think of, you know, if you if you help change one person who can then help change one person, that's a kind of pathway that can be really strengthened. People tend to laugh about um, over-talking the positive nature of books, but I am a true believer. <laughs> I just, I mean, again, I just feel like if you read, you expand your mind, you visit new worlds, you learn stuff. That said, I also think it's important to make room for escapism too. Of course. Um, what have you been reading for escapism lately? Oh, man, I really love Jasmine Guillory's books. Oh, she's so good. <laughs> Especially because she has this way in the midst of the romance novel constraints, really slyly you know, painting portraits of black joy and community, but also not shying away from microaggressions and the like. So yeah, I've read The Wedding Date, The Proposal, and now The Wedding Party. And what is it, Royal Holiday is the one coming out? Yeah, that one I don't have yet. I'm very excited. I am too, especially <laughs> since what 
I think she ha- had a deadline moved up by six months and she had to write it so super quickly. compressed. Yeah. So I, w- I want to know what that was like and, yeah. and what's the result. And then I feel like I should talk about crime books that are about please have co- have come out and are about to. I know you've had Laura Lippman on the show. Lady in the Lake was brilliant. I was yes. St- I'm still amazed that I got to do an event with her. Lisa Lutz's The Swallows yes. is phenomenal. It's really it's the book of this moment of all moments. Hmm. And then coming up in a couple of months is Steph Cha's Your yes. House Will Pay. And you know, disclosure, we have the same editor, and Steph's a dear friend, but. And she had talked about it with me as she was writing it. But when I read it, I just thought, this is doing something in the genre that we have needed for so long. And I think it will pave the way for other writers to take even greater storytelling risks, thematic risks, and just like crime fiction is such an elastic genre. Yes. Where we think it's constrained, but actually those constraints hold multitudes. And just everybody who can keep pushing within and against it. It just and the fact that there is, and I hope there will continue to be a greater influx of writers of color and writers representing different subcultures. We need this as a genre. Yes. We we need multiplicity of voices. We need all sorts of perspectives. And we need, and not just perspectives in terms of topics, but also perspectives in terms of approach to language and to structure. Yes. There's a lot of room for that, and that makes me really excited as a longtime and forever crime fiction reader. I love it. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on. What oh, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review, and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>